Jay? I have to start class. Huh? I'm in class. And we talked about some of the consequences of, of giving good news to those who believe in you, right? Including the fact that we're shifting away our focus from the negative to the positive, and we're also engaging in this ongoing process of mutual positive exhortation. And then if this was to become a mass practice, think of the benefits, inshallah. Okay, <clears throat> one of the questions that I kept receiving was about the use of Khalid, at the end, that uh, uh, I made the point that that paradise is beyond our imaginations, and it is also fair to argue that hell is also beyond our imagination. Uh, but in the case of paradise, um, I was suggesting yesterday that paradise does not necessarily follow our rules of physics, our rules of time. So some words like Khalid, which from our perspective means forever, uh, may have a different meaning. Uh, when we speak of paradise. It would still be eternal, but how do you describe eternity in an environment where time may not exist, and yet days may exist? So it's, uh, uh, the point is that paradise is, is literally a different world. Okay, so <clears throat> we now have three commands. And the next thing to, to consider is that 
the the prophet peace be upon him is receiving criticisms from from some of the people of Medina and one of those criticisms he's receiving is is and I'm paraphrasing look at you know how strange your book speaks about Allah Ta'ala Allah Ta'ala is so high and yet your book speaks about these things that are that are in, uh, uh, insignificant so your book speaks about ants and bees and spiders and those things uh, uh, are are very very you know it's beneath God okay and so <clears throat> what do we have here it says that Allah Ta'ala it is not beneath Allah Ta'ala Allah Ta'ala is not shy to hit you with the example of a gnat or anything uh, above that. Yeah. So what do we? Uh, so the point here is that we made when we were speaking about the royal we all the way back in ayah two, where or uh, ayah three, where Allah tells us says that they spend of what we have bestowed upon them. We said that very often in the Quran, Allah Taala speaks in the language of a king, especially when he is majestic and he is bestowing uh, uh, upon the people. And these, we find these patterns throughout the, throughout the whole text. And so what is often taking place with a king is that a king has a certain type of adab, a certain type of manners, a certain type of performance before the audience, you know, of people, of citizens of that society. And, and, and so there's some things that kings are not supposed to do or say. And here Allah Ta'ala is saying, no, it is not beneath him to be speaking about these things that seem insignificant. Yeah. So the way Musab says, yeah, king speaking to his subjects or about his subjects. Yeah. And then <clears throat> what else do we have here? Those who believe know that this is the truth from their Lord. Those who reject say, what is Allah Ta'ala wishing to, to teach us by these, these uh, metaphors or by these similes? Yeah. Now here we also have the most basic relationship that we should have with the Quran and that is to take it as true and what I mean by this is that it's possible that I don't understand what most of it means but I still take it as truth from Allah and once again notice how is Allah Ta'ala being described as Rabb so rabbihim. <clears throat> So they know that this is truth from the rub, which means that they know that this is truth from their nourisher. Okay. So what am I saying? The most basic relationship I should have with the Quran <coughs> is that it is truth. And so there might be many things in the Quran I don't understand. Yeah. Now for us, uh, this, this point might seem very, very basic, but it's also laying out exactly what we're speaking about here, the basics. But then we have this question being posed by the coffers. As for those who have rejected, they say, Mada arada So what is Allah Ta'ala wanting to uh, say by virtue of these examples? And this is an interesting, tricky question. They've already rejected. And they're asking, you know, what is the point of these metaphors? This is not the same as you and I trying to make sense of the metaphors as we did from eyes 17 through 20, right? When we were going through those eyes, we're trying to figure out what does this metaphor seem to be saying about the man killing fire or 
or the 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 rains the guy in the rainstorm or the person being uh, you know um, under the the bolts of lightning. <clears throat> so here's the question: What is the the coffer asking here, or what is the coffer trying to ask when saying what does Allah mean by these metaphors? Any thoughts? to the class. Any guesses? And of course, <coughs> that computer just crashed. So, so it is a form of rejection. Uh, Abdul Ansari, please explain that point uh, just a little bit further, inshallah. To confuse a believer. So here, <coughs> uh, uh, we see this exact same practice. Question is implying that they're fishing for faults. Yeah, that uh, we see this practice among the modern day atheist preachers, right? So if you're familiar with with the people that are called the, the four horsemen of of modern atheism, uh, Christopher Hitchens, Sam Harris, Ayan Hersi Ali, and Bill Maher, uh, they're often called the four horsemen of, of modern atheism. And, and what is the point that is taken about them to, uh, they're these public intellectuals trying to believe, oh yeah, Dawkins is, is one of them, maybe Dawkins instead of uh, Ayan Hersili. But um, these are people who are trying to argue that religion is ridiculous. And so this is the same type of behavior here that some among the, the Kafirs are arguing, they're raising this question, okay, what does God mean by this, by this metaphor? But they don't really care about an answer. They've already rejected. And this is, uh, this is a, a, an experience that if you engage with people, sometimes you're gonna come across those people. Uh, uh, Tyson, what's his name again? Neil deGrasse Tyson. Uh, I don't know that he's at that level uh, um, as like the big public atheist preachers uh, and the way that Dawkins and the others are anti-theist. Uh, Tyson comes across more as this self-promoter by way of astronomy, but, but Allah knows best. <clears throat> so, so the point I'm making is that it doesn't seem like they're actually interested um, in an answer. And then we have this fascinating last part of this ayah. <clears throat> so Allah Ta'ala does not, uh, through these metaphors, either the metaphor of the gnat or all the uses of the metaphor, or through the book itself, Allah Ta'ala guides many and he misguides many. Actually, he lets, he misguides many and he guides many. Or when you did it, we can say he lets many go astray. No, mashallah, the other one is back. So, so the point being is that <clears throat> Allah Ta'ala is saying that he lets many go astray with these metaphors or with the book itself and he guides many. Uh, with the book itself. Try to explain the logic. Why would Allah Ta'ala, with this book of guidance, allow people to go astray? Or why would Allah Ta'ala, with this book of guidance, let people go, uh, lead people astray? What do you think? That seems very, very frightening. That we're saying this book is guidance. Here it says it's guidance for those who have taqwa. In the ayahs on Ramadan, it speaks of this book as being guidance for everybody. Why would Allah Ta'ala let people astray? 
as you notice steadily we're getting into deeper questions and well is it a leading of astray an active leading of astray or just not guiding them so i'm saying what if we read it both ways either that allah is leading them astray or is letting them go astray through yeah. the text at the end of the day it will still go back to his uh omniscience and uh, uh the absolute creator correct okay so translate what that means like uh, absolute will i mean uh on our part whether he leads us uh to guidance or, or leads us astray mm -hmm. still a, in a matter of uh obedience correct and submission I'm not understanding the last part you're saying. Uh, I need more explanation. Uh, lead astray. Uh, if you're going to uh, take the point that he can lead astray or something, or anything, he's not obligated to give us guidance. Let's put it this way. Mm -hmm. That's a key point right there. Mm -hmm. Right? <clears throat> One of the difficult things that people were struggling with, and we'll, we'll go through some of these comments in a second, when we were discussing free will and predestination, is that Allah Ta'ala is not under any obligation to guide me. And that is a very, very difficult point. And so Jewel says guidance is a blessing. Meaning Allah Ta'ala has created me, but he is not obligated to guide me. Now what we're going to see, uh, in case people get too afraid, in the next ayah, his default relationship is still going to be guidance. The key first key point to accept is that this is not something that I am entitled to. In as much as I'm not even entitled, I don't I don't even deserve existence, but it's a gift that He's given me. I also uh, uh, am not entitled to guidance. Okay, so think of that as a foundation. Yet throughout the text, yet throughout the text that uh, Allah Taala is still speaking of pouring mercy upon mercy upon mercy. And so when we bring it closer to, to what we have in this ayah, what are we saying? Uh, like some of you say uh, that, uh, you know, if I have a disease in my heart, I might read the Quran for the opposite of what it's saying. Okay. So, uh, Omar, quick question. Where is this yes. Mahan. So, you know, it, it seems also, especially based on what you just said, that you, you get from it what you bring to it. Right. So if you bring to it a closed heart, you're, you're taken one direction. And if you bring to it an open heart, um, that raises other questions uh, as to your initial condition, perhaps. Mm -hmm. um, and if, if we're, you know, if, for the believer, even if you don't understand it, you just accept that uh, there's guidance in it. It's the same attitude that a lot of people bring to other traditions as well. So when they read the Bible and so on. And so this question of how, how you choose ultimately then, or, you know, what's the role of free, I don't know, free thinking, but a kind of, you know, independent thinking to make up your own mind. If you've already got an element of surrender as your initial condition. So these are some of the things that I'm thinking about. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would, uh, I would agree with these points as far as I understand them, uh, especially this point that you're bringing to the text you, which includes bringing pretext. And so if we, if we take uh, the point you're making, if I wanted to argue that the Quran is a book of law, but no, correction, if I want to argue that the Quran is a book of war, you know, in the way uh, many Islamophobes like to do, 
can I do that? Can I prove or can I argue that uh, with that the Quran is a book of war? What do you all say? And then I'll still catch up on some of these. Uh, it has both. Okay, keep going. But can I argue that it is a book of war? What do you think, Rashidi? I don't think you can argue because it's like both has like the type of warning and as well as like, you know, the mercy and like, it's not, there is like not way, there is not specific way. It has both for me. Okay. What if I take the opposite? If you're saying that, then that means you're also saying the same thing. If I argue that it's a book of peace, correct? It's not completely of peace as well as it's like, it's a teaching as warning. I okay. See. Okay. So at least you're being consistent for both sides. Right. right. You know, so, so the point I'm making is that if I want to argue mm -hmm. it is a book of war, mm -hmm. there are passages True. that I can point to. If I want to argue that it is a book of peace, there are passages that I can point to. Absolutely. If I want to argue that it is an anti-Semitic text, what do you all think? <laughs> There's definitely passages that I can point there are to. Absolutely there, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and so now... Can I argue that it is an anti-Muslim text? I mean, right from page three, we're talking about monophics. The monophics are Muslims. So, so the point is, uh, I'm making those examples, the simplistic examples, to argue that if, you know, building on what, what Dr. Mahan said, if I am looking through a particular narrow lens, especially, then I can, I can cherry pick, which was the word someone else did, to, to, to prove what I want. Yeah. Now, if I take the whole text, it looks like the default is peace. Yeah, absolutely. Um, if I take the whole text, it looks like the default is Rahma. But we all know uh, examples that are all over the news of people who use the Quran either as Islamophobes or people that we might classify potentially as terrorists and such that are using, sometimes using text to justify all kinds of, of, of uh, uh, bizarre behaviors. So, so fundamentally, if I'm seeking misguidance, then potentially I can use the Quran to further my misguidance. Okay. If I'm seeking truth, inshallah, the Quran will guide me to truth. Okay. But it is inshallah. Uh, technically, you cannot say anti-Semitic because the word Semitic refers to both Hebrews and Arabs, mashallah. But the operational definition of Semitic uh, would be you know, the cultural definition of Semitic would be, would be Jewish. But yeah, your point is correct, um, uh, Musab. Uh, let me just see if these other points are related to all this. But what, is, what are we saying? The core <clears throat> is that Allah Ta'ala is not obligated to, to, to guide me. And then second on top of that, if I am seeking something specific from the text, uh, I can probably find it. And some of those things might be in line with the guidance of the text, or those things might be turning in the opposite um, uh, direction. We have the example uh, uh, of the Hawarij, who are these ultra-literalists. And so they first start appearing after the conquest of Mecca. The Prophet, peace be upon him, is passing out some of the community wealth, and he gives it to these new Muslims from Mecca. And the people of Medina are, are, are complaining, hey, we're poor, and you're giving this Muslim this money to the new Muslims, and then other people are accusing the Prophet, peace be upon him, accusing him of, of being unfair. And his answer to the people of Medina is, I need this to win people's hearts. You guys have me. But then this one man comes to the Prophet and says, Ittaqullah ya Muhammad, right? Have taqwa of Allah, fear of Allah, all the way in different ways you want to translate this. <clears throat> Don't be unjust 
And the prophet, peace be upon him, is reported to have said, if I'm unjust, then who will be just? And then he says, uh, the prophet says, among the descendants of this person, could be biologically or, or ideologically, you will find people for whom Iman, and I'm paraphrasing, is so shallow, it'll be like an arrow going through a deer. <clears throat> and a way to understand that is, imagine an arrow going through a deer, it goes right in and right out, and it tears up everything along the way. And that's what Iman will be for some people. And then they really resurface under Uthman, and then especially under Ali. And, and then they go on for a while. These are people who take the Quran absolutely literally. And they take the Quran above humanity. And so it was very common for them to, to kill people. And that was exactly what the Prophet, peace be upon him, is saying. Are we saying that we don't have to be seeking misguidance in, to incur misguidance, um, or is it always earned? Okay, that is a perfect segue to the end of the ayah. Allah Ta'ala says he does not misguide anyone, okay. except the fasiqeen. So now we have a third type of person. So I'm going to type this up with caution. So think of the different models we have. We have the person of taqwa. We have the person of kufr. Kufr. We have the person of nifaq. And then we have the fasiq. And as I write another diagram, what is the fasik? The fasik would be the shameless rebel. And so this, uh, I've made this diagram before, but just to put us on the same page, remember we spoke about moving from Islam to Iman to Ihsan, according to the Hadith of Jibreel. All these are part of the process of getting closer to Allah. But then I might go in the opposite direction with the result being, if I'm Muslim, nifaq. If I'm not Muslim, kufr. And then those can lead to fisk, to be a fasik. Okay. And so <clears throat> Allah Ta'ala then gives us three attributes of the people of fisk, of the fasiks. So, before I spoke of the Munafiq and the Kafir as being two opposites of the people of Taqwa, two opposites of the Muttaqeen. So imagine you have like a little line here, positive versus negative. And the truest opposite of the people of Taqwa, as we're going to see, are the Fasiks. And what is a key for how to get closer to Allah? It is by way of Taqwa. How Taqwa metaphorically a few different ways. So uh, we said that uh, taqwa is essentially this act of putting yourself on guard. Fasting is literal taqwa. You're putting yourself and you're keeping yourself on guard. And the fasiq is just letting go, complete shamelessness. So, so ayah 27 gives us three attributes for those people uh, uh, of Fisk, the Fasiqun. The first one is they break their pact with Allah after confirming it. Okay. And we'll look at each of these in a moment. The second one is that they split what Allah has ordered to be joined. And the third one is that they make mischief in the earth. 
And so a common understanding of they break the pact with Allah after joining, after confirming it, a very common understanding of this is the primordial covenant. And, and so, uh, can you all see Loyola? Someone, someone not, not or something? Yeah, good, okay. So if we go to uh, Surat Al-A'raf, and I think it's around I-170 to 174, somewhere in there. <laughs> yeah, all those tabs, mashallah. They all have the key to guidance. Okay, so in a moment, this will load. So there is this moment in pre-eternity, and many of you are familiar with this story. There's this moment in pre-eternity where Allah Ta'ala rounded all of us up. And then what? Their descendants. Okay. So when Allah Ta'ala took from the children of Adam and their, uh, from their descendants and made all of us testify. Okay. He said, Alastu bi rabbikum. Am I not your Lord? And we all said yes. And this is hardwired in us so that we are not going to be able to use this excuse on the day of judgment saying we didn't know. So let's make a little bit of sense of this, this moment in prehistory. So I'm going to stop this and then bring us back to our wonderful whiteboard. This leads to, uh, I don't think we've talked about the question, can a non-Muslim go to paradise? But you'll see this is a natural consequence of this. So, have we spoken about the fitzrah in this class? Anybody recall? No, okay. So everyone is born on fitzrah. Okay. And so what is fitzrah? Fitzrah is your pure natural state. A lot of people misquote the hadith where the prophet is reported to have said that you are born on fitrah and then your parents raise you as Jewish, Christian, etc., etc. People misquote that to say you're born Muslim and then Allah Ta'ala, then your parents raise you as Jewish, Christian, Muslim, uh, etc. You're actually, according to the hadith, you're born on fitrah. And there are a couple elements of the fitrah. One is a consciousness of Allah, meaning everyone is born with a consciousness, or to, so to speak, everyone is born hardwired with the consciousness of Allah. And then everyone is also born hardwired with a consciousness of right and wrong. or boundaries. But this fitra can be corrupted or it can be made hidden. It can get buried. And it could also be purified. It could be repaired. polished back into shape. 
So from that ayah we looked at, where all of us are confirming to Allah that he is our Rabb, we have this idea that everyone is born on fitrah. This is your natural state. What do you mean by right and wrong? Is this in the framework of Islamic ethics? Yes. Yeah. Think of back uh, what we spoke about yesterday in terms of right and wrong. Now, <clears throat> this raises the natural question, and we'll go back to, if time permits, these actual attributes of the people of Fisk. Um, can a non-Muslim go to paradise? This is especially a, a question that is important for all of us in this call, because if you don't already have uh, non-Muslims in your immediate and extended family, most likely within the next 10 years you will, if you don't already. And so this becomes a fundamental question. Absolutely. Thank you for your confirmation. <laughs> so, so what is the most common answer uh, that we give in our community? It is no. Mm -hmm. Of course, another possibility is yes. Another possibility is, of course, maybe. So what is, uh, can a non-submitter go to Jannah? Uh, are we qualified to ask this question? I mean, it is up to Allah, uh, but let's, uh, let's get into this. Uh, Mohi, please uh, speak further about what you mean when you're saying a non-submitter. So let's say, uh, can I, what if we say, can a Christian or uh, Jewish, atheist, etc. go to paradise. I'm making the question the same thing. Okay, so <clears throat> when we spoke about free will versus predestination, the part that I was trying to emphasize the most was the practical reality of, of, the, uh, uh, of, the, of the theology. Okay. Meaning there's the hair splitting you know, can this happen? Can that happen? Do we have free will? Do we not have free will? There's a theoretical part of it, but the most practical part of it relates to those ayahs that we looked at in Surat uh, Al-Hadid, where we said that there's some things like some loss as well as some gain that's pre-written for you so that you do not uh, mourn excessively what you've lost and so that you do not boast about what you've gained. That's the most basic uh, practical consequence. Uh, Ahant, uh, we're talking, yeah, I'm talking to everybody in this room, but yeah, there's some people in this room who, who mashallah, used to be non-Muslim and are now Muslim. And so those people, um, and perhaps you're familiar with some of those people, uh, this becomes an immediate question. Okay. <clears throat> so the issue becomes, if I truly believe XYZ non-Muslim is going to hell, then the question becomes, so this is the belief, what action should that compel in me? And I'll give you a different scenario. Suppose you're walking down a street, busy street, and people are walking left and right, and we'll just assume that, you know, this is some place where they're not social distancing, and, and people are walking along, and... <clears throat> Uh, I keep, you'll, you'll notice I keep moving my head like this just to make sure that I'm not frozen. And you notice a van is out of control and it's about to run over the people that are standing right in front of you. Instinctively, 
what would you be doing? If you see this van is about to, in the next 30 seconds, is going to be hitting these people and they're too busy listening to their iPhones and so they don't uh, see it coming. What would you do instinctively? Warn them. Yeah, you would shout, you'd yell, you'd scream. You might even try to grab them mm -hmm. to, to pull them off the road, just like Wassam said. You might even potentially grab them at the risk of your own life, potentially. Yeah. And that's if someone is getting hit by a van. And so here we're talking about what if someone is going to hell? Hell is far worse than getting hit by a van. A van is a, is a piece of cake compared to hell. So if I truly believe that a certain someone is going to hell, then I should be calling them, perhaps even begging them, to God. So is that not what the Prophet, peace be upon him, did with the people of Mecca? The problem is, a lot of times, people say no because they believe that's not fair. I got to do all this work. I have to pray and I have to fast. That's no fair that someone who doesn't have to do any of that can go to, can go to paradise. Okay, that's kind of a silly opinion. That's basically saying that paradise is limited and that everyone would be on the same plane. As you and I know, everyone's at different levels of paradise. So let's suppose the lowest level of paradise is, oh, I don't know, who, who do we have here? Okay, let's say the lowest level of paradise is Las Vegas. Okay, no, no. Um, let's say the lowest level of paradise is Orland Park, Illinois. Okay. okay. Fantastic place. Okay. Or Naperville. And so, would you have a personal problem with someone being granted that um, versus what, you know, what you might be getting? Okay. Likewise, if I say yes, a non-Muslim can go to paradise using the various, various definitions. Okay. Uh, the, but I'm still Muslim. I would still be calling them anyway, because I'm saying you can have a better life. And maybe it would be the same thing. Okay. I'm not sure if this person is going to paradise, uh, but I'm more sure about my insurity about myself. Uh, the end result of whatever my theology should be, should be that I should be calling people to God. But especially if I'm going to claim that they're not going to paradise. Because if I am saying these people are not going to paradise and I'm fine with that, then there's a problem in my own humanity. Because that's basically saying that if this van is going to run people over, I'm going to be saying, well, better you than me. Okay. And so, yeah, to answer uh, Dr. Kazi's point, yeah, it is a reflection of our own belief or the quality of our own belief. Which theological schools believe the latter two? So, so how does this play out? I'm not going to give you the names of the schools as much as I'll give you the, the arguments. This school says because everybody is born on Fitzra, everybody innately knows truth. This school says uh, fitra can get buried, which is why we need messengers. And so if we, thus the need for prophets, 
and thus by extension, messengers, peace be upon them. And so the second school is saying, <clears throat> because it can be buried and because we need messengers, then it is not fair for Alatella to punish someone uh, who has not received a messenger. Based on the ayah, which I think is in Surah Tawbah, some, uh, somebody can, can remind us that Alatella is, is not going to punish someone who has not received a messenger. And so, so these are the big two dominant views yeah, in terms of the barest, barest essence. But what is common among both of them? So what is common, and thus I'm going to call the correct answer, is number one, Allah will judge everyone fairly. Or better. He will not give you less than what you earn, but he will give you at least what you earn. Uh, Sarah, it may be Surah Anfal, uh, but I'm forgetting at the moment. I'd have to look it up, inshallah. So what is the core correct answer? What is common among, among uh, these different schools is that Allah Ta'ala is going to treat everybody fairly. What is assumed is Allah can do as he wills. So far, so good? Okay. All right. <clears throat> and it looks like moment, you probably have a profound question, which I'll try to get to uh, uh, at the end in just a moment. All right. So, so to go back to the first attribute of the people of Fisk, to go back to the first attribute of the Fasik, we're saying that these are people who break the pact with Allah after having confirmed it. So this was Surah 2, 26 and 27. We said that Allah Ta'ala does not misguide anyone except for the Fasiq. And so the default relationship Allah Ta'ala has with creation is actually guidance. We're saying he doesn't have to, but that is what he has appointed for himself. Okay. And then the first attribute is the people who break their pact with Allah after having confirmed it. A second way this seems to be commonly understood is all those times someone makes a promise to Allah and then they break it. You know, kind of like when you're a kid, you know, me, if you buy me this toy, I'm never going to ask for a toy ever again. Yeah. And then four hours later, if you buy this toy for me also, I'm never going to ask for a toy again, right? And so, so the point being, um, uh, that's the first of the attributes of the people of Taqwa. Tomorrow, inshallah, we will look at the second and third attributes of the people of Taqwa. Uh, Abu Rahma, if you can find the exact ayah number, that would be beneficial. Do we know if fair is subject to the standards of a Muslim? Very good question, Saram. Fair is according to Allah Ta'ala. But we will recognize it all, inshallah as fairness. So it would not be according to my standard or your standard. So Abu Rahma is saying it is ayah, uh, Surah 17, Ayah 15. Uh, let's see. Now on to Moment's question. I have to get my brain ready. Uh, is there a situation where one would be forced to choose if someone else would go to paradise instead of uh, oneself? 
I don't know of any case like that where I get to, I have to choose either you go to paradise or me. Uh, there are moments like that in the movie Titanic, but I don't recall any any moments like this in in actual Day of Judgment. And in fact, it almost seems like the opposite that if there's only one space left in paradise, we're going to knock everybody out of the way, and then you know everyone else is going to fall away. Okay, like, uh, can we choose to be misguided in exchange for someone else's guidance? Yeah, it doesn't work that way. It's a very, very fascinating question, so I'm curious about where that's coming from. If that were the case, what would it look like and what would be the, be the better thing to choose? If that's not the case, how can we know for sure that's not the case? I don't know of any example that even hints that that's the case. Um, can you repeat what the third school maybe? Oh, there isn't really, like the maybe would be basically, uh, Lutfi, that'd be just uh, uh, everyone who is not engaging in, in the issue. Where does Shifa of the Mormon or the believers fit in into this uh, matrix? Um, meaning, uh, we may be granted the power to intercede and bring other people into paradise with us, but none of it, uh, I don't know of any passage that even hints that we would bring other people in paradise instead of us. Uh, let's see, a uh, moment that's a relief. Okay, I'm glad it's a relief. Abdullah Mirza, how could I believe that someone would be going to hell after reading the Al-Khidr story, for instance? I have heard time through, I have a hard time truly believing that I understand anyone well enough, even though they're apparently doing many bad things. This might seem like a problem on my part. No, I think that's actually a good quality, not a bad quality. With that being the case, how do we go about calling to other people when we don't have prophetic understanding about them? Ah, that's a very wonderful question. Um, calling people is more based on cultural understanding of a people as opposed to prophetic understanding of them. And that's all, uh, um, this would be calling everyone, including all of us in this uh, meeting. Sarin, okay, I answered your question, mashallah. Uh, is not calling them to be belief is a quality of our own belief? Yeah, right, we answered that. Uh, Hannah saying better than hell, I think you were talking about Orland Park. I mean, I forgot, where are you from? Jersey? Jersey is probably the lightest level Anyway, so uh, let's see, moment, we try to get them to move yet. Okay, all those. Uh, other questions that, that I'm scrolling up, looking for those. Um, Noor, if there are different levels and a non-Muslim family member or friend is in the lowest one, Orland Park, but we are another one, would they be able to visit us or do we need to go to Orland Park? <laughs> okay. uh, so, so here we also find scholarly speculation and it seems to say that if you're at a higher level, you can go down. If you're a lower level, it's not, it's, it's not as easy to go up. So if you're in the Orland Park level of, of Jannah, and let's say hypothetically a higher level of Jannah is Skokie, okay, then the people in Skokie can go to Orland Park. People in Orland Park may not be able to go to Skokie, but maybe they can get an invitation. Um, uh, so that's not hypothetical. Okay, mashallah. So let's make it more realistic. So let's say someone is in the lowest level of paradise, which would be the White Sox, and the lowest level of hell, which is the, anyway, Chicago Cubs. Okay. Okay, Lutfi, does all this assume that one can't have Iman while being externally non-Muslim? Uh, that's a very good question. Uh, you, might not, you might not have been in class that day. We did talk about the possibility of someone being, having Iman, but hiding their Islam. Uh, I don't know if that's what you're referring to or someone having him on yet, uh, yet actually having a different religion. Ahant. What about being unaware of their Islam on that point? What does that mean? Like, uh, like the, I don't know, I've heard of the concept of like mu'minuna bilrayb, like they're like, in the unseen, they're believers, but outwardly they're not, or they have a different but, faith. But you're saying they don't know? Right. 
Yeah, Allah knows best. I mean, if they're still on Fitra, you know, okay. I see it as a possibility. Yeah. Uh, Skokie did, did survive the Chicago fire, mashallah. Okay. Um, let's see. Ahant, for someone with non-Muslim family members, as hard as it can be hard to call to God, we will be punished. Uh, on the day of jailed ineffectiveness of our call. Uh, can you put that into simple, simple English? I'm not uh, quite understanding what you're saying here. I will say what I think is at least part of what you're saying, uh, that yeah, for many converts to Islam, uh, the families are often, many of uh, the families are ultra hostile. And so as is the case with doing da'wah with anyone, um, it requires wisdom. You know, saying the appropriate things at the appropriate time, maybe not calling them yet, maybe calling them later. Uh, this is a point that I make to a lot of my, my, my convert students who, whose families are thoroughly hostile to them, is I tell them, you still want your lifelong goal, the marathon goal, to have reconciliation with your family, even though right now... So my, question, my question was that, yeah. you know, if we don't achieve that, like, lifelong like, goal, you know, that, like, end goal, like, so, like, so, like, will we be accountable for that? If uh, if the person didn't call them or if they didn't become Muslim, if they didn't become Muslim, that's not on you. That's not on you, right? I mean, think about how many of the prophet's extended family members did not become Muslim, right? You know, the most famous of them being Abu Lahab. You know? And so we are not held to account for what other people earn, and they are not held to account for what we earn. Uh, Stephanie Alexander, how do we deal with the fear of calling people to believe? For instance, the more I preach to them about faith, the more opportunity they have to potentially reject. In other words, I'm struggling with the concept of ignorance being bliss. Okay, so we don't go with the argument that if you didn't, if you, if you call to someone and they say no, now they're going to go to hell. But if you didn't call them, then they're going to, then they're going to go to paradise. Um, uh, there's that, you know, the famous legend of the of the preacher going, the missionary going to the Eskimo, and the Eskimo saying, "Wait, if you didn't tell me this." Um, then wouldn't I just be going to paradise? And so, so the point being, the latter part, whether they accept your call is not on you. Your obligation is to just to deliver the message. Yeah. And so even though we use the word datwa, this should not be confused with missionary work. Our job is just to make sure people know the message and the core message is one God and prophethood of Muhammad, peace be upon him. Uh, Mus'ab, uh, can we visit the Prophet, peace be upon him, and other Prophets? Uh, in Jannah, uh, hopefully, inshallah, I'm guessing that the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, would be happy to see all of us, yeah. each and every one of us, one by one. That's what I'm guessing. What I think would be even better would be his neighbor in, in Jannah, inshallah. Regarding the second group of people uh, talking of Fitra being buried and the need for Prophets, is this not a segue? towards arguing against the finality of the prophet, peace be upon him, as the argument can be made that no guide uh, or can call to truth better than the messenger. Uh, I think it can be used as an excuse, but I don't think it's, uh, uh, um, it negates the finality of the prophet, peace be upon him. Uh, we'd argue that the prophet has given us sufficient material to then further, because uh, one of our titles is to be the messengers of the messenger. Like, for example, the prophet, peace be upon him, on his final Hajj is telling all the people what those of you are present go tell those who are absent right and so so uh, I see the point you're making I think but I don't think it negates the finality of the prophet um, I have a quick question yes Omar al-Khadra so like to the point that Stephanie was making and to the example you just said about the Eskimo so I understand that our part is only to 
to call for you know Islam or whatever it is. But then if they say no and then they reject, does that take them out of ignorance? Does that like them being them saying no? Does that make take them out of fitrah? Okay, so another way to frame this would be. <clears throat> Uh, uh, you are not, uh, you do not have the capacity to have someone knocked out of paradise, or, um, but you have the capacity to be the vessel through which someone receives guidance. And so what I'm saying, this goes back to the, the free will predestination point, so hopefully I won't confuse everybody. So let's say, you know, we have this, this, uh, this person, you know, who's on this island, and I happen to be walking by, and uh, I introduce this, I introduce this person to Islam and then they feel this inner compulsion to become Muslim and either they say yes or they say no. Yeah. At that moment, I was the vessel for it, but the guidance was going to hit them anyway. And it could have just hit them by them having a moment of reflection about creation and such. See what I'm saying? So a vessel would have come regardless. This is what I'm saying. Now, this is all scholarly speculation because this is one of the big questions that comes up, right? You know, are you going to send people, isn't it better just to stay silent rather than to call people and with result of them going to hell? But the, the answer beyond that is Allah knows best. Is it choice versus predestination? I'm saying what is predestined is that the call is coming. The choice the person is making whether or not to embrace the call. So only people of Jannah can meet their relatives in Jannah. I'm not sure about that point. What if people in Jannah want to meet relatives or friends who unfortunately couldn't make it to Jannah, a.k.a. might be in hell? So one understanding is that of the people of Jannah, uh, oh, I see what you're saying, Sadia, that I can only meet my relatives in paradise if I'm in paradise. <clears throat> so one understanding is that regarding the people, your relatives who are in hell, you're not going to have that longing from them, but you might be able to sort of through a window talk to the people of hell and they might even ask you for favors and you're going to say, sorry, I can't help you. You had your chance. And another understanding, which is a bit more fun, gets more fantastic, is that you will still have a version of those relatives in paradise, like a clone. So take that for what you will. What would be the general framework one might hold when trying to call someone to Islam? meaning the means and methods. Uh, this, I think, just intuitively, if you were to call someone to a better diet, how would you do that? And I suspect part of it is language. Part of it is, is uh, you know, figuring out the proper time, proper words. It would include how you dress, the methods of communication. And such would be the same thing if you're calling them to something even better than that, which is religion. Uh, the pushback, Sadia, on, on the point of, you know, you might have, a clone of that person is that the actual person is still in hell. You're having, you're getting the optical illusion of them. You know, there's, there's a Russian film that was remade into a George Clooney movie about this um, Solaris, not about this, but with the same point. Uh, any other questions about anything at all? Any questions above that I missed? I, I got a question. Yes, sir, Dr. Mahab. It's, it's follow up of the one that came before about the general framework one might hold when calling someone to Islam. Because you see, um, you know, when the prophet's there, it's black and white. And there's a whole community. Now we have this history. We have Muslim countries. We have dysfunctional communities also. And so 
you know, is the call really to some kind of philosophical proposition in the unity of God? Is it an intellectual argument? And uh, obviously, some of this is going to be determined by who you're talking to. But you know, just the the nature of the call it might have to be very different from the one that the prophet made. I don't know. Yeah, I would agree. I mean. Uh, uh, so I have a couple of reflections on your question, inshallah. One is that the people in Mecca literally had the best case scenario you could possibly have, meaning they have the best possible communicator okay, who not only were speaking about the prophet, peace be upon him, in terms of his honesty, he's also claiming of himself to be the best in terms of speaking, in terms of speaking uh, a grasp of the, of the Arabic language. And then, on top, so they have him in terms of the character model, you know, which is the more effective da'wah rather than lip service, the actual model. And then on top of that, they have the Quran, right? And, and so, so uh, even then, the Quran is often speaking. Uh, I'm sorry, I don't know who, uh, how this call is coming. So let me just probably turn off my phone. Even then, uh, <clears throat> The Quran is still coming in their poetic forms. And even then, there are people who, who as we know, are not embracing his, his message. Okay. Some start embracing it by the end of the period of Makkah. Some start embracing it after going through war with the Prophet, peace be upon him. So what I'm suggesting is that even for them, if we add up all the different methods of call, we have multiple different methods and focus on multiple different uh, aspects of reality. So we often uh, speak of Bilal. What is the what is the the part that captures uh, uh, Bilal? May Allah be pleased with him. Is the fact that Allah is your master, right? And likewise for for Yasser and Sumaya. Whereas a different ayah speaking about something else is is appealing to a different uh, a different companion. And then, and so just by based on that alone, I would say yeah, the language we use would be different than than the time of the Prophet peace be upon him. The real question I would suggest is the package of Islam. Where would it be different? So my default opinion still right now is the acts of worship are still going to be the same. Uh, but the call to get a person to that level, we're going to speak to them. You know, I will be speaking to a professor from Notre Dame with, with one language. I'd be speaking to a physician in Hawaii with a different language. I'd be speaking to... to um, you know, someone else in, in uh, a different language. So, so uh, I think I answered your question, but let me know if, I, if there's still more to it. Inshallah. Just, just quick follow-up. So, you know, um, so you, but the acts of worship, you know, is a pillar of Islam. It's not, you know, all, all of Islam. And so when, when you get to questions like social justice mm -hmm. or complete way of life. I mean, there's a whole conversation around that that's taking place outside of the frame, framework of Islam. Mm -hmm. And I guess when we make the call, do we abstract ourselves out of that conversation or is it in conversation with that conversation? And that really changes the nature of the conversation. conversation. Yeah. <laughs> so, so in a nutshell, uh, I don't think you can abstract yourself out of the conversation. Um, but your conversation can be one that is abstract, yes. And, and so when we look at, you know, what is the role of what today we call religion at the time of the Prophet, peace be upon him, it seemed to be an inseparable part of your identity. 
Whereas today in, in the contemporary era, which is even different than 20, 30 years ago, it's one of many, many different identities that a person might carry. And, and so, so the language of Datwa today in 2020 would also be very different in many aspects compared to the year 1990. Um, and then when we speak of the entire thing, this is, you know, think back to our lessons on Dean at the beginning, uh, when we spoke about Dean as a system of interaction, uh, much of our religious discourse today is working in the context of, of um, you know, a superarching capitalist nation state. And, and so we usually limit even what we speak about in terms of social justice. So yeah. last, last, last question. <laughs> does, that, does that imply that the deen is changing? Uh, I would say the sharia is changing. The roots of the sharia do not the deen. Um, potentially, yes. Yeah. Uh, but the reason why I'm saying potentially is because the dean as a concept is a very, very abstract concept, right? So, so in schools that you and I are very familiar with, where we speak of iqamatu dean, establishment of the dean, some will push back and say, well, you have that in Surah Al-Bayna, which is to, to have ikhlas and to do the salah, dhalik al-deen right? So I think there would be multiple interpretations anyway. Other questions. Is it more than uh, is it more that is a demerit if we don't act as the vessel? Uh, I don't think it's a, it's a demerit if we don't act a vessel. It's more of a privilege if you are. So a fundamental question, which I think is sort of in Ramya's question, is what level of obligation do I have to do dawa? Uh, I'm of the opinion that it's far the kifaya as opposed to far the ayn. What is far the ayn? That's the obligation on each individual. Like your daily prayers, that's an obligation on each individual. What is fard kifaya? It's a community obligation, and that is where I would put datwa. For the simple reason that not everyone should be doing datwa. There's a lot of people who absolutely should not be doing datwa, who are often the people that are choosing to be on the pulpit and on the front lines and such. So, so I'm saying it is a privilege if you are made to be the vessel, but. Um, it is not an obligation to do so. Silent question. Yeah, where's this voice coming from? This is Feroza. Yeah. Yeah. So speaking to that again, um, is it does it suffice our Fard Kifaya, this obligation to dawah if we are simply, I don't know, indirectly living a Muslim life, right? In our beliefs and our actions and our dress, etc. Or is that insufficient or is that you know, is that a level? Is that a sufficient level? So I would say that is an individual obligation, right? To have upright character, meaning to be honest, to speak the truth. And that uh, in our society, you know, for all the criticisms we might give to American society and such, there's still an appreciation for wholesome behavior. And so I'm saying that would be a very effective tool of Datwa just by being an upright person in the way Islam is calling you to do, yeah. without me saying, oh, you should become Muslim, right? Right. Um, and so, but I'm saying is still a societal obligation in some capacity to call people. So I'm saying it's not necessarily, you know, an individual's obligation to call people to Islam, but it is an obligation to be honest, you know, you know and which I think is far, uh, which I think we'd all agree is, is a very, very effective tool of dawah, as opposed to giving people a copy of the Quran you know, but Allah guides, you know, whatever way he will. In the case of Dhul he treats different people, treat different ways. Is that instructive to us? 
Um, that's a good question. I, uh, I don't recall as much about Zulkarnain, but it would be fair to say that he is speaking to different populations differently, you know, in this call. And I think that would work for us. But I even think that uh, without even the need to get into uh, uh, proofs, I think just intuitively, if you're calling um, someone who is a World War II veteran, you know, to the dean, and that person lives in the middle of Tennessee, you're probably going to use different language than you would for someone who is a, a 35-year-old, uh, you know, nonprofit worker in Chicago, right? Those are, those are um, I think, innately, intuitively, we'd be, we'd be doing that. Just like, you know, when I'm speaking, you know, for all the, the however many speeches I've given, I'll totally accept all of them, but, you know, uh, often I can't even prepare my speech because I need to see the audience uh, before so I can figure out how to, speak to them. Dr. Nasheen, in what sense is social justice limited by living in a capitalist society? I would argue, and I'm not promoting socialism, but I'd say that capitalism is innately unjust. Uh, there are some aspects of capitalism that uh, are very beneficial, but some of it is uh, uh, a privilege of the privileged. Um, but that would be a whole, whole conversation on its own. I'm not saying that socialism is the answer, although, you know, so many people in our call are Bernie people. Some people, I think, are also Biden people. But that could open a different can of worms. Any other questions about anything, anything at all? All righty, see above. A question about something unrelated. Shabbat Berat. I read its hadith and on the Quran. Can you speak for 20 seconds with some bullet points? Which we do, should we be doing? How important it is. Okay, so very, very simple nutshell. Hey, Mahan, do you remember we, we attended a lecture by Dr. Sar about this, like way back in like 96? So, so there's an ayah in the Quran that references Laylat al-Mubarakah. And one of you Hafiz guys can, can find the ayah for us. And some are of the opinion that Laylat al-Mubarakah is speaking of Laylat al-Qadr. Some are of the opinion that uh, ayat al Laylat al-Mubarakah, Laylat al-Mubarakah, the night of blessing or the blessed night, is speaking of the 15th of Shaban, which is, uh, according to some calendars, I believe tonight, and in the short version uh, of the story is that it's understood that in this night, Allah Ta'ala is closest to the world. There's many, many narrations about when Allah Ta'ala is closest. Like, for example, when you're in Sajda, he is closest. And I think certain types of Qiyam, he's also closest. But another teaching is that, on, uh, another uh, teaching uh, is that on the night of the 15th of Shaban, he is closest to the world. And thus, uh, as is the case with so many of these special nights, people will do extended prayers. So Laylat al-Mubarakah is in the Quran. The understanding that that is the 15th of Shaban is scholarly speculation. And then culturally, people will have different uh, acts of worship for the, the 15th of Shaban. Another is the, light, the night of Laylat al-Miraj. So in some parts of the Muslim world, people will, uh, will uh, go and do a hundred rakats uh, at the masjid, which I don't advise any of you to do tonight if you're in anywhere in the world that is being affected by the, the pandemic. But uh, uh, so the worst case scenario is that if you pray extra prayers tonight with the intention um, that inshallah Allah Ta'ala will hear them, you're not losing anything. But as an institutionalized Islamic practice, the core is uh, the understanding that there is something special uh, about Laylatul Mubarakah. And a common scholarly uh, opinion is that it is tonight. 
but what you do that night, Allah knows best. You know, there it seems to be more culturally uh, um, um, dictated as opposed to found in our sources, but I could be wrong. Okay, um, if those are all the questions, what, what I do appreciate, mashallah, is now the questions are getting uh, much, much more. Am I going to do something tonight? I will, now that you've asked me, yeah, I'm going to make some extra prayers. Thank you for asking me, so now I, I will, inshallah. Okay, um, then we'll make dua. Subhanakallahumma bihamdika nashadu illa ilaha illa anta nastaghfiruka natubu ilayk. Subhanakallahumma bihamdika nashadu illa ilaha illa anta nastaghfiruka natubu ilayk. Subhanakallahumma bihamdika nashadu illa ilaha illa anta nastaghfiruka natubu ilayk. May Allah Ta'ala reward you all. Command three. Wa akhir da'wana anilhamdulillahi rabbil alameen and everyone stay safe.